once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. History is full of impregnable fortresses that fall. In some cases, technology changes make the fort obsolete. In others, a traitor lets the enemy in the back door. Babylon had a river running through it, and the Persians diverted the river and went under the wall. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Habakkuk, Hard Thoughts of God, with this message entitled Faith's Foundation, which covers Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, we're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 6, and we're continuing our series on this book called Hard Thoughts of God. Now, if you don't know where this book is, just turn to the Gospel of Matthew and start going left just a few pages at a time, and if you get to Jonah or Micah or Nahum or one of those other minor prophets, you've probably gone a little too far. But before we dig in today, I just want to make two quick comments. We're about to dig into a text that to our modern ears is going to sound very strange, because God is about to pronounce woes of judgment. Now, Two things probably pop into our minds. The first is this. We might go, well, this is an Old Testament thing, and that doesn't apply to me because I'm a New Testament Christian. And I'd push back on that and say to you this. The God of the Bible is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And while the way certain parts of the Old Testament apply has changed, they still apply. And second... This isn't just an Old Testament, Old Covenant thing. It's a Jesus thing. Because Jesus, in Matthew 23 and in Luke 6, he takes these very same woes of judgment onto his own lips. These are not just Old Testament things. These are New Covenant realities that still apply to the people of God and find their fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that as we dig into this today, instead of being confusing to us, they'd become a source of joy. But before we dig in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we come to a God who is not dead but alive. Lord, you are a God who is not silent. You are a God who speaks. And you are a God who meets with your people in the very midst of their brokenness and their weakness and their need. And Lord, you meet us in full. Speak now. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts wide to you. And may we walk from this place knowing and loving your son Jesus more than we came in. And we pray all these things in his matchless name. Amen. When I had just gotten out of college, uh, a buddy of mine, he and I had a weekly tradition that we like to call Depressing Movie Tuesday. Uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. We would go to Blockbuster, which was still a thing, and we would wander down the aisles and try to find films that to us sounded slightly depressing, usually something foreign, usually something kind of arty, and most of the time, it was as bad of an idea as it sounds. You would watch a movie and you would get depressed and you would go, why did we do this again? But every once in a while, we'd stumble across a gym Sophie Scholl was one of those gems. It was a German film, a true story, 
about a girl whose name I had never heard, but whose story I have returned to many times since. One of those movies that you watch and you find yourself wondering, how true could this possibly be? Surely this is embellished. And then you research it and you find out that it's actually very, very accurate. Sophie Scholl was a young girl who grew up in Nazi Germany during World War II. She was one of a small group of Germans who didn't just sit idly by while the Nazis took control. Instead, she and her brother and some of her friends, they became Nazi resistors. And she joined that resistance because as a Christian, she knew that she could not follow Jesus and truly love her neighbor as herself if she did nothing and stood idly by while her government destroyed and exterminated people who were made in the image of God. And so she stood up and she fought back and what you would expect to happen, happened. She was captured. She and her brother and her friends were charged with high treason. The court system began to put on the show of a trial that was really not justice, for the end was already predetermined, causing her dad, who was not allowed to be in the trial, to try to break in and to scream at the judge, one day justice of another kind will come because this is not it. And when the sentence of death came down, Sophie Scholl was led into a room with her parents. Something the movie depicts, but if you go and read the court manuscripts, they literally take it line for line from the court documents. And this is what happens. Sophie sits down across a table from her mother and her father. And as her parents are fighting back tears, Sophie says, do not worry. One day we will see each other again in eternity. And her mother reaches across the table and takes her hand and says, Sophie, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. And Sophie squeezed her mother's hand back and said, Mother, you remember him as well. And they took her by the arms and they led her down the hall a walk that she made, according to witnesses, unflinchingly and without fear. And they shoved her head in place at the guillotine, and they pulled the lever, and Sophie Scholl was gone. She was 21 years old. The kind of woman that I pray my daughters would grow up to be. Because here was a woman who lived and died by faith, A woman who knew that faith never leaves you standing still. Faith doesn't leave you sitting where you are, but who knew that she had a Savior who was not dead, but who was alive. And that while justice might not come on that day, there would be a day when the justice that her father screamed about, the justice that her heart hungered for, the justice that we all long for, that justice would come in full. That's the hope of Habakkuk 2, verses 6 to 20. Habakkuk has come to God and he has complained, saying, God, how long are you going to leave your people in this world of brokenness and sin where the wicked seem to flourish and the righteous seem to suffer? How long will you do nothing? And God has said, I'm sending Babylon to destroy you and to carry you off into exile, and you 
You who live here in this time, who see nothing but this brokenness, you were to live by faith in me. A God who is mysterious, but in all things good, whose heart is tender and whose redemption is certain. But it's not until you get to these verses that God finally tells Habakkuk and us what that certain redemption that flows from his tender heart actually looks like. This is the hope that sustains God's people in the midst of a world that so often feels hopeless. This world where the blood of innocence seeps into the ground and cries for justice and seemingly nobody hears. This world where violence and abuse and brokenness and sin seem to reign. This world where families are torn apart and cancer kills and injustice seems to reign. And every corner of this world feels more broken than anything could possibly repair. And we as God's people find ourselves saying with Habakkuk, how much longer? And God in this text, he says, here's my answer. And it's a glorious one. Because what he says here is that blood that seeps into the ground, crying for justice that seemingly nobody hears? Twice in this text, verses 8 and 17, God says, I heard it, and I was not unmoved, and redemption is coming, and justice is coming with it. And here's what he says, starting in verse 6. Shall not all these, the righteous who live by faith among the nations, shall not all these take up their taunt against him, this is the wicked, Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you, you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man, there's that line again, and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation 
when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord, Yahweh, he is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Five woes, five images, each one stacked on top of the other, giving us a picture of the redemption that is going to come. God's promise that not only will Judah's Babylon fall, but so too will all the Babylons in this fallen and broken world. It's a warning to those who trust in themselves and think that because they have glory and power and might in this life, that they'll have it in the next. And it is a glorious hope that God is offering to all who trust in him. Because in this text, it says to you, there is a king and a kingdom coming that will swallow all the others whole. And when it comes, justice is coming with it. And it starts with the very first woe in verse 6. The plunderer will be plundered. Listen to what it says. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? How long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. God is looking out in this world where people so often, in their pursuit of wealth, and their pursuit of gain, they think nothing of trampling people under their feet. He's looking at Babylon, this nation that he is raising up and giving power for a moment, but this nation that is driven by their own greed is going to walk through nation after nation and country after country and conquer people after people, all with this one purpose. They want more and more and more plunder for themselves. He's looking at the wicked of Judah that Habakkuk cried out about in chapter one, who are corrupting the courts, not because they want justice, but because they want things for themselves. He's looking at all of those who pursue unjust gain, not just in this time, but in all time. He's looking at the businessman, businessmen, who owned the banana companies, which sounds really innocuous when you say it, but who owned the banana companies in the 1800s and 1900s, and then paid and planned for the overthrow of the Honduran government, not just once or twice, but repeatedly so they could keep their taxes low and their profits high. Never thinking about the people on the ground who would suffer as a result. He's looking at the payday loan lenders who set up shop in the places where the poor live and prey on the desperate with interest rates they know they can't repay, thinking that they are guaranteeing for themselves a perpetual flow of wealth and grinding families underneath their heels as they do so. God says, I see it. And in this life, you may think that you go unnoticed and you may think that this will go untouched, but I'm coming. 
the plunderer will be plundered and the very people that you have stolen from and oppressed, I'm going to raise them up against you. And if you think that you can make yourself secure, you're wrong. Because not only will the plunderer be plundered, but as the very next woe tells us, the secure will be exposed. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You know, what do you do when you steal something? You don't march it out there and expose it to the reach of others. What do you do? You immediately try to find a way to make it safe, don't you? It's why judges get bribed. It's why witnesses get killed. It's why banks have vaults. And it's the reason that Babylon decides as they plunder the nations that they're going to build a fortress around their city, the likes of which the world has almost never seen. From what we know of ancient Babylon, the historian Herodotus gives us a picture of this city. They build a wall, a double thick wall, 56 miles long around their city, 300 feet high, 125 feet thick, with 250 towers around the perimeter, each one 450 feet tall. The walls are dug 35 feet under the ground, so if you want a tunnel under this city, it's not going to work very well. And around the city are gates, not made of wood, which you can burn, but made of brass, which at that time, 2,600 years ago, would have been like their titanium steel. And just in case that wasn't enough, they put a moat around the city. Babylon is wanting to make absolutely sure that none of the nations they have plundered ever come back and plunder them. They want to be sure they are secure. And God says, you can build whatever wall you want. You can build it as high as you want. You can make it as thick as you want. But it's not going to work. I'm going to take your city down. You think, verses 10 to 11, that you've devised glory. You've devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The very place you built to make yourself secure, it will be the thing that cries out your condemnation. And there's nothing you can do to stop it because you are not secure but before this God, you are exposed. And then God keeps going. <laughs> woe, the third woe, the civilized will be consumed. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. You know, we can build the biggest and mightiest of things. We can build civilizations. We can build empires. We can build companies. We can build cultures. We can build governments. We can put together infrastructures. It doesn't matter if it is bigger and better than anything that has come before. God says in the end, 
No matter what you build, if it is founded on the blood of men and on sin and iniquity, then on the last day it will fall. It will be so much wood for the fire and all of the effort and energy you put into creating it, it will have come to nothing. Just think for a moment. What empire, what civilization that has ever risen to great heights, which one has not fallen? Rome? Greece? Persia? The Aztecs? Babylon? The Soviet Union? One day us? They all fall. They never think it's coming, but they always go down. And God, in this text, he says, and I'm the one who brings them down. Because what empire, what civilization is not founded on blood and iniquity? Because what country, even the best of countries, is not founded and ruled and run by fallen, broken men and women? They will be consumed and they will come to nothing because in the end there will be only one king and one kingdom that will stand and that's Christ's own. Look at verse 14. He says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. The presence of God will so fill this world that it will cover every single square inch with his rule and his reign. And where God's presence is and where his rule is brought to bear, their justice and righteousness live too. That's what's coming. And then he adds a fourth image. The plunderer will be plundered, the secure will be exposed, the civilized will be consumed, and the shameless will be shamed. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Notice this, is forcible. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself. Hear this, this is... This is not tender, merciful, nice, Jesus. This is strong. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man, there it is again, and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Notice what this text just described. Why, why do they make the neighbors, their neighbors drink? It's not to gain something. They're not gaining anything monetarily. They're not gaining power. They're not gaining security. They're not building up their civilization. Why in this text are they making them get drunk? It's for the perverse pleasure of looking upon another in their shame. They do it to what? To gaze at their nakedness. 
You know, isn't this the ugly state of all of our hearts? If you give us power and you give us position and we find someone who is weaker than we are, what is the thing we are also prone to do? We're not cruel sometimes because we have something to gain. We're cruel sometimes just because we kind of like it and we want to feel powerful. And notice God's response. This isn't human vengeance. This is divine. God says the blood that is seeped into the crown and that cries out, I've heard it. Verse 17, for the blood of man and violence to the earth. God is furious in this text, not because he's a God devoid of love, but because he is love. Because he sees people who were made in his image and the world that he created that was gloriously good and that he entrusted to man, and he has seen both of those things violated and destroyed in ways they were never intended to be. And God says to those who shame others, to those who belittle others, to those who revel in their power and delight in the weakness and the shame of others, shame is coming the likes of which you could never possibly imagine. You think you're strong, You haven't met me. There is a cup coming that you will drink, a cup of wrath that you will swallow to the very last drop, and the violence you visited on creation, notice verse 17, it will be visited on you. And all of these things the reason the plunderer will be plundered, the reason the secure will be exposed, the reason the civilized will be consumed, and the reason the shameless will be shamed, all of it comes to a head in the final woe. Verses 18 to 20, the idolatrous will be silenced. And as we read this text, I want you to listen to what it says and see if you can catch what's different here. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Did you catch the change? All four of the other woes, they do what? They start with the woe, and then they move to the description. This one doesn't do that. This one starts with the description and ends with the description, but then right smack dab in the middle is the woe. If you're ever reading your Bible, and you notice a pattern change like that, that's the writer waving his arms at you and saying, stop here. Because this is the axle around which the whole text spins. This 
is the foundation of your faith. This is the root of all the other sins that God has judged and declared his anger against in the previous four woes. All of it is right here because the reason the plunderer is being plundered, the reason the secure is exposed, the reason the civilized are consumed, and the reason the shameless are shamed, and the reason that God's people Those who live by faith in the midst of this fallen, broken world, the reason we have such confidence, it is this. Only one of us has trusted in a God who is alive. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Because there is only one God who sits in heaven. And he sits in his heavenly throne room and no one will knock him off of that seat and there will be a day when all of the earth will fall silent. And on that day, he will be either your refuge or he will be your judge. It's a text that should make all of us sit there and stop and ask yourselves, what is it that we're trusting in? Is it something in this world? The idols of our culture, money, sex, power, politics, applause, approval, a job, Or is it in the God who stands in heaven and rules and reigns over all things? And here's how you know which one it is. The answer is running all through these woes. If you want to know if you've trusted in an idol or if you've trusted in the living God, ask yourself this. How do I treat the ones who were made in God's image And how do I steward the gifts that God has entrusted to me? All through scripture, there is this repeated refrain that the one who worships an idol becomes like the idol. And if you worship what is dead and indifferent and uncaring, that is what you will become. And people and the gifts that God has given you to steward, those become sacrifices on the altar of a false God. And God says it will not stand. But here, here's the hope that this text extends to you. The hope for those of us who sit in this world and are crying out, how long? It is that what this God who sits on his heavenly throne says, it always comes to be. He doesn't speak idly. He doesn't tell lies. He speaks and things come into existence at the sound of his voice. And you see it right here in this text. Habakkuk is writing this book in 640 or 630 B.C., And in 586 B.C., what God has promised would happen with Babylon has happened. Babylon comes, Babylon conquers Judah, Babylon carries Judah off into exile. But that's 
not all God said would happen, is it? Because in 539 B.C., a little over about 100 years after Habakkuk writes this, at a time when I'm pretty sure, just guessing, because he'd be way over 100, I'm pretty sure Habakkuk didn't live to see it, but Babylon, Babylon goes down too. And the scriptures actually tells us how. In the book of Daniel, chapter 5, it says that King Belshazzar, who was the king of Babylon at the time, he's sitting inside of that fortress that he built that he thought would make him so secure with its 300-foot walls and its 250 towers and its moat and its brass gates. And he has a thousand of his lords laid out in front of him. And he decides that he wants to boast in his might and in his power. And so he has them gather the plunder that they've taken from the nations and bring it in the room, including, and very specifically, the golden vessels that they stole from Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. Vessels that were set aside for one thing and one thing only, and that's worship. He fills them with wine and he passes it out to his lords that they would get drunk with him. Hope you're noticing some themes from this text coming back. So that they could sit and celebrate together at the peoples that they have shamed and they can praise their gods of wood and stone who gave them victory over the God whose vessels they hold in their hands. And while they're sitting at the table drinking from those vessels, a hand appears and begins to write on the wall And nobody knows what it means. They just know that that wasn't a human hand and they're terrified because in their secure stronghold, somebody's broken in. And the stones and the wood are crying out and they don't know what they're saying until they find this Judean prophet named Daniel. And Daniel looks at those words on the wall and Daniel says, oh, I know what they mean. You have not honored the God in whose hands are all your ways. And your days are numbered. You have been weighed and you have been found wanting. And tonight, tonight your kingdom is going to end. And that very night, the Persians pour into that city and they take down that stronghold. And the plunderers are plundered and the secure are exposed, and the civilized are consumed, and the shameless are shamed. And before the one who sits in his holy temple, Babylon falls silent. What God spoke, it came to be. But here's the hope that you and I have this morning. Not everything happened Yet, the earth was not filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the sea yet. All the earth did not fall silent, though Babylon most certainly did, because we were waiting for somebody. We were waiting for the one prophesied in Isaiah 11, from the seed of Jesse and the line of David a king who is going to come, who as the text says, his breath would slay and destroy the wicked, and who when he comes, 
And this is the language of the text. The knowledge of the glory of God would fill the earth as the water covers the sea. One who would come who would not just carry the cup of God's wrath and force others to drink it, but one who for his people, who themselves could not stand up under God's judgment, would instead drink the cup himself in their place and for their sins so that they would not need to fear this day, but instead would look forward to it in hope. One that we see in Revelation 8 the lamb slain for the sins of the world who sits in God's heavenly temple. And when he opens up the final seal of God's judgment, the text says, and all of heaven fell silent. Jesus. Jesus is the king who has come and who is coming again. And Jesus's is the kingdom that has come and one day is going to come in full. And you and I, who live in the midst of this world, as 1 Peter tells us, as exiles in the midst of the land, just as Judah did when they lived in Babylon, we have this as our hope. As 1 Peter says, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is unperishable and unfading and undefiled, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, not your own, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We wait, and we wait by faith, And we wait in confidence because we realize that there is one who sits on the heavenly throne and there is no one who can cast him off. This is the certain redemption that flows from God's tender heart. This is the hope that causes Habakkuk to cry out for joy in the final chapter of this book. This is the hope that sustained Sophie Scholl as she was led down that hall to the place where she knew she would die. And this is the hope. This is the hope that you and I are offered in Jesus. Because we have not trusted in idols of wood or stone. We have trusted in the one who sits in his heavenly temple and before whom all the earth will fall silent. And his name is Jesus Christ to which we all say, with all the saints over all time, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. And pray for us. Father, we come as a people, Lord, a people in desperate need of you and a people who cry in our hearts for a justice, Lord, that seems so far off, and yet, Lord, you say to us who cry how long, not long, Lord, we pray that you would take this text, not just its warning, but Lord, its hope, and you would press it deeply into the very fiber of our being so that we would leave this place as those who know the hope that you have raised us to new life in, the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. 
Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.